Well, as you're opening your Bibles to the letter of 1 Peter, hopefully you remember that last week we opened this letter and began to look as Peter addresses the elect exiles in what is today north-central Turkey. They're Christians from different backgrounds. They were Jews and Gentiles, urban and rural, all being built into something that is beautiful and new, the church of Jesus Christ. And Peter wrote to these churches on the basis of his apostolic authority. So he knew Jesus personally. He was with him, and Jesus himself commissioned Peter and the other disciples to be apostles. I said that there was only one man who, that received his apostolic appointment through a vision, and that was Paul. A loving brother, though, gently pointed out to me that to call Paul's experience a vision is maybe a little bit misleading, and so I think that he was right, and I think I should make a correction. In other words, I made a mistake. <laughs> Paul did not merely have a vision. As he himself says in Galatians 1.12, he had a revelation. So he's traveling the road to, to Damascus, Paul and this group of others, and then this thing happens, this supernatural thing, and it, and it lays Paul down on the, on the ground on his face. But the others with him, they're also experiencing something supernatural. They hear a voice from heaven. They witness this event. There are others who witness it. And then as we... We know later the other apostles recognized Paul as being one of them, as also being an apostle. And I think that we need to remember, and I need to remember, Paul's revelation and the nature in which it happened, because it's helpful when we are hearing people claim that they have an apostolic appointment today. Is their claim, is their claim like Paul's? Did they have... It was a vision. Did they have this incredible vision and hear a voice from heaven and that be witnessed by others? That voice really come from heaven or was it just in their head? I think that we should immediately be on guard when people claim to be apostles, when they claim that authority. They're claiming an authority that they have no business, no right to claim. I think sometimes, though, we should try to understand what it is that they mean, because sometimes they've reinterpreted what an apostle is, and they might just mean that they're a leader of leaders. Okay, that's fine, but you shouldn't call yourself an apostle, because the apostle is, had known Jesus, saw the risen Jesus, was appointed directly by Jesus, and that was witnessed by others, for all of the apostles. So that's my correction. No one has ever become an apostle through a secret vision. No one. With the witness of others, Christ has appointed the apostles. All right, so that's cleared up. Let's move on. Let's get into this week. Let's go a little bit further with Peter's letter. Uh, so we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 today. And as you know... The series, the sermon series that we are in is entitled Hope in a Hostile World. The chalkboards on either side of the stage say born again to a living hope. And so 1 Peter is absolutely stitched together 
with hope. It is one of the most predominant themes that Peter is writing about. Hope is what powers our faith. It's what carries us on to endure, to persevere, to fight the good fight. It's all born out of this living hope. And so today, we're going to see Peter begin to unfold what that hope is. And I want to reveal through this message what a great hope we have and what is the nature of this hope. So let's read our passage and more. We'll start in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Oh God, you have given us incredible words right here to consider. And I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to them. Lord, we pray that we would see in, in these things uh, something beautiful, something incredible, something that would inside of us become like a burning fire driving us to grow in you, to want more of you, to endure anything for the sake of you. How good it is that you give us such precious gifts like hope, like faith, and like these words that we consider today. With humility and awe, I pray that each one would receive them. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you noticed it, but Peter enters into the body of his letter with worship with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed means adored, exalted, glorified, hallowed. So this is not some formulaic way to, to begin a letter. He's not following a set pattern here, but he is bursting with praise. Peter is bursting with praise, and you must ask yourself, why? What has him so worshipful? Well, so we need to remember where we were last week. We need to remember those first words that he started with. And they showed us that before the foundations of the world were laid, God loved his elect, and he chose to adopt them into his family as sons and daughters, us who are the elect. The Holy Spirit has then taken the eternal decree of election and brings it into the present moment. He awakens us to faith, to love of Christ. And he sanctifies us, purifies us by that same love. And then finally, by the power of, of his blood, Jesus Christ will one day complete this transformation as he brings us into glory. Father and Spirit and Son, 
working on our behalf in the past and the present in the future? Does this not cause us to say with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Does this not want to make you erupt in worship that God has done these things on our behalf? I think praises like this that we're seeing Peter start with, they stream heavenly light into the darkness of this world. This praise, it's like a, a weapon of heaven against the sufferings of today. You want to fight with the sufferings of today? Do it with praise. And then what follows are some of the most precious theological truths that we share in the faith. These are theological waters that are so deep, humanity has yet to find the bottom of them. And in fact, it's so deep and so hard for us to get our small minds around that we argue about the meaning of them and have been arguing about the meaning of them for millennia now. But it's fine. I've got it figured out. So, <laughs> yeah, that was a joke. Thanks. Thanks for recognizing that. I do enjoy also how Paul gives to us these incredible theological realities in one of the most complex sentences. And pulling things apart and understanding what relates to what is a monumental task. I tried to diagram this sentence like you learn in grammar school, and I actually had to download an app to try to think through how do you diagram this sentence. It is, it's complex. He and Paul, they really like to brutalize you with their complex sentences, but the truths that come through them are amazing. The center of the sentence, though, we can see everything else revolves around this as things would revolve around the sun. He has caused us to be born again. That's the center of the sentence. He has caused us to be born again. Being born again means that suddenly... Due to nothing that you have done on your own, your affections reorient. There is a great internal shift that happens. Your desires are no longer rooted in the sinful, selfish things of the world, but more and more you want Jesus and the things of Jesus. Again, you do not cause yourself to be born again just as you did not cause your natural birth. It is not according to you. But just as Peter writes, it is according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. God is the first cause of your faith. I'm reminded of the Apostle John, who, speaking of the new birth, he says this, But to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, that means you have been born again. Faith in Jesus Christ is the new birth. And if God caused your new birth, then what did he birth you into? What is this that you have now come alive to in faith? What is it? Well, Peter tells us. 
Look again at verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So sometimes when we talk about hope, we talk about things that are uncertain. I think usually that's how we talk about hope. I hope to get married and have a family. I hope to get a raise. I hope I'll be able to retire at 65. Whatever it is, all of these hopes come with a high degree of uncertainty. You have no idea if those things are really going to happen. You just hope they will. That is not at all what Peter is talking about here in verse 3. This hope that he's referring to is like a fire that burns within us. It's like a drive. It drives us into this joyful pursuit of Jesus Christ with everything that we are. It is not grounded in temporal things, things that fade, but it is grounded. Listen to this. It is grounded in the very word of God. If God has spoken it, will it not come to pass? For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, decreeing the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. If God has spoken it, it will be. If he has promised, it will not fail. Though you do not possess the promises today, you most certainly will. It is a reality as real, if not more real, than this reality. Now live in the joy of those promises like they are yours, like God's word is true. It is true. That is a living hope. Notice that I speak in terms of the heart. Hope has to do with drive with joy, with expectation, with desire, with things that make life worth living and make certain deaths worth dying. And for something to be alive, that means that it, it grows and it strengthens. So it is with this living hope. Year by year, that which God has borne in us matures and deepens, increasingly shaping our thoughts and our desires, shifting our priorities from the, the things of this world to the things not yet seen. So I think one of the best ways to gauge a person's spiritual maturity is to see how intensely and how joyful is their expression of the promises that they hope in. Think of that as you're filling out those elder nomination pamphlets. Do they live with a joyful expectation of the things not yet seen? But there's another layer to this living hope, something that isn't within us, but it's external to us and is anchored in the past. So look once more at verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here you've got to ask yourself, how does our present living hope 
come through Christ's resurrection. I think sometimes the best way to understand a passage is to ask questions of it. So how does my present living hope come through Christ's resurrection? I think one of the best ways to answer this question is to put ourselves into Peter's shoes. The last interaction that Peter had with Jesus before the cross was not positive. Peter cuts the ear off of one of the guards that has come to arrest Jesus. And then Jesus essentially scolds him, and he says, no more of this. The last words that Peter heard from his Savior. And then he ran away, only to deny him three times. And in a matter of hours, the one that he declared the Messiah was hanging limp from the nails. All of Peter's hopes lay in pools beneath the cross. And yet, as Peter writes this letter, some 30 years after those events, he isn't talking about a hope that has long died. He is talking about a living hope. Three days after the cross, as you know, Christ took the victory. The whole world changed in that moment. It was then that Peter finally and fully realized that Jesus is not just the Messiah, he is indeed God, the Son. Every word, then, that he said, he will do. Just as we read from the prophet Isaiah, he will do it. Words like, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, Peter is talking about a living hope that isn't just about the resurrection. It's about the resurrected one. Peter and all of us are only able to have any semblance of a living hope because Jesus lives. And there's so much to this, so much depth to plumb. Jesus Christ is the source of our living hope, the fountain, the fire, the source. In a very real way, when God caused us to be born again to a living hope, he united us to his Son. When Christ rose, we rose. That means that at the moment, the moment of the resurrection, the eternal life of all of the elect was secured eternally. Your eternal life was secured, yours. Nothing now can separate you from the love of God, not even death. You were born to be with Christ. And I mean that in both senses. So our living hope is found not merely on pages or as somebody talks up front. It's found in the risen Son of God. And this hope that lives, it grows within us, it strengthens and it matures. It is your salvation 
secured through Christ's resurrection, bored into the present as a living hope, and it will be completed at the last time. There is an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Look again at verse 4 now. I'll back up a little bit. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance kept in heaven for you. So notice the switch in pronouns here. He goes from talking about us to you. What he's trying to do is make this intensely personal to you. It's mine. It's yours. And this is an inheritance that remains imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It's like no other promised land on earth. No enemies can invade it and destroy it. None of our sins nor the world's can defile it. No amount of time nor erosion will cause it to fade. It is forever for you. Like nothing else that you can conceive of. Each one of those three adjectives are true about the future also. Let's take undefiled. When you possess this inheritance... You will be unable to defile it. And that might sound simple, but that is amazing. There is no sin within you to, to stain glory with. Every thought, every action will meet the complete and joyful approval of the Father. You even imagine that. You will know a relational and personal freedom beyond your wildest dreams. This inheritance that Peter writes about is primarily an inheritance of relationship. In Psalm 16, David writes, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the Lord, that is our chosen portion, our beautiful inheritance, in whose presence there is fullness of joy, that Lord is Jesus. When we get to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we will look more closely at what that means. Jesus is our portion, and he is coming to bring us into our inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Think again about these words. If this inheritance is kept for you in heaven, does that not also mean that you are being kept for it? There's a powerful implication that God will cause every one of his elect to persevere to the end. Look at verse 5. 
who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God is exerting his power to guard this inheritance for you and to guard you for the inheritance. No one can enter into heaven and take it. Nothing in all creation can take you from it. And not angels, nor demons, not things present, nor things past, not powers, nor heights, nor depth, not even death can take this inheritance from you. You are continually being guarded for it. Constantly. And it is by the power of God himself that guards you. So you are being kept safe for heaven. And heaven is being kept safe for you. It would be no comfort at all to know that God is keeping our inheritance for us. But we don't know if we're going to make it there or not. It would be a lousy promise. Peter tells us how God guards us for this inheritance. It's in verse 5. Through faith. Your faith is a gift from God that He is using to keep you for the salvation that awaits on the last day the day that you enter into your inheritance. You see, faith is the power of God at work in you to keep you for your inheritance. This may cause you to ask the question, as it caused me to ask the question, so what is the difference between faith and hope? I think there's, really think about that and try to separate the two, faith and and hope. It's not so easy. It ends up being very difficult. For sure, you cannot have one without the other. They come together as a package. But what is the difference? What's, what distinguishes them? Well, I've already been hinting at the answer. To understand the distinction is really to better understand the nature of hope. In his commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther explains how faith is oriented towards the mind, towards reason. Hope is oriented towards the heart. Faith is belief or trust in the truths of God, believing them, like knowing, that, knowing the truths of God as, as real as the sun that is shining outside. Hope is the eager expectation that those things are coming to you. Faith believes that Jesus rose from the dead. Hope believes that you will too. So there's an objective reality. Truths. Things that are real no matter what, no matter whether or not you understand them. There is a resurrection. There is a heavenly inheritance. Jesus rose and he lives and he's coming again. And nothing you or I will ever do can change that. They are real. Now faith comes first, and it trusts in these realities. It believes them. Hope would have you bleed and die for them. Faith will carry you into a hostile world. 
hope will carry you through it. As Luther writes, faith and hope are like the two cherubim on either side of the mercy seat, seated atop the Ark of the Covenant. Doctrines like election and resurrection and heaven and all the others, these are like the ocean. Faith is the boat on which you live. Hope is the wind in your face and what drives the sails. The ocean is from God and the boat is from God and the wind is from God. It is your complete and utter joy to be carried along to whatever is beyond the horizon. And I think you can see now why Peter so closely associates faith and hope. We were born again to a living hope, and God will deliver that hope to us through faith. And salvation, that's the whole process. It's all of that. And the process that turns out ends up stretching into eternity. As we saw last week, Father elected us, his sons and daughters, long ago. The Son died and rose again to secure that salvation. And you were saved. You were saved. The sanctifying spirit sent by the Father then births in you faith in Jesus Christ into a living hope. You are being saved. And God is keeping you for a salvation that will be revealed on the last day and you will be saved. Your salvation is as eternal as God is. Though it may look different at different times. If God decreed it, who can undo his decree? Can you? If, you? if you rose with Christ, who can put you back in the ground? If the power of God by faith is keeping for you an, an inheritance, can you overcome the power of God? Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. How can we ever talk about somebody losing their salvation? It's not possible. There are only people who appeared to have faith, but by their unrepentance, it's clear that there was never a living hope there, that there was never a new birth within them. The Apostle John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But those that are of the elect, who have a living hope, no one, not even you, can snatch you from the Father's hand. 
You were born again to a living hope, and as long as the Word of God stands, that hope is sure, is living, and cannot be killed. Our hope is anchored in the past, for Jesus rose, and our hope remains in the present, for Jesus lives, and our hope is completed in the future, for Jesus comes. And now let these hopes burn within us, growing and maturing and strengthening until it is a blaze that no suffering on this world can extinguish. That is the living hope that we have. No one can take these things from you because no one can take them from God who has promised them, who has established them from eternity past into your eternity future. They are real. No worldly hostility, no amount of physical suffering, no loss of those loved can take such a hope from you. What a great hope we have been given. Blessed be the Lord and Father of our Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We owe all to you, Father, all to you. Before we had any thought in our mind at all, you knew us and loved us and chose us. And out of the darkness of our sins, you called us and brought us to yourself. And even when things look dark in our future, there is a bright, enduring hope that you will bring us into, where we'll see our risen Savior coming to us to bring us into our inheritance. Praise you, Father. Praise you for this great and living hope. May it burn inside each one of our hearts, driving us to the very day we see you. You promise you will keep us. Lord, keep us. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We want more of you, and we want to live more truly to these promises that you have given to us. Help us, Father. Increase our faith. We pray these things because of your Son. In him we hope and trust. Jesus Christ, amen.